Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Do you want to know if it's necessary to finish both sides of a project? Do you shun the use of jigs when working with hand tools? Do you have trouble boring straight holes with a brace and bit? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 27 of the show for May 30th, 2018. Before I start today's show, I just want to take a minute to thank our new patrons, Cameron Broom and Ted St. John. Thank you both for signing up on Patreon to support the show, and thanks to all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. And if you'd like to support the show, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking, and if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. So nothing's really changed in my shop since the last time we spoke, so I'm just going to get right into the show today because we've got a bunch of feedback and a bunch of questions. So uh, our first feedback actually comes from uh, Brian Steinberger, and uh, he says, I've been loving the podcast. You've done such a great job answering my questions that I decided to increase my Patreon subscription. Well, thank you, Brian, for that. I have feedback from last week's podcast. You talked about finishing after hand planing versus sanding. To piggyback off that, what are your thoughts on finishing only one side of a board? I'd love the look and smell of the inside of a pine cabinet or pine chest as bare wood, but have had others tell me that I should at least finish the inside with shellac to seal the wood and balance the moisture intake. I've never had problems with my work being unfinished on the insides, but it's only a few years old at this point. What are your thoughts to this often discussed topic? So, Brian, um, I think you've answered your own question. The the old adage that you need to finish both sides um, is total bunk. Um, it's been disproven. It's been written about numerous times um, by experts. Not you know, and I'm not talking about myself here. Uh, guys like uh, Bob Flexner um, have said it time and time again. It is absolutely 100% not necessary to finish both sides of a piece. The fact of the matter is that the majority of the moisture ingress that gets into a piece of wood gets in through the end grain. So the finishing the face grain doesn't really do a whole heck of a lot um, to to slow or, or um, do much to that moisture ingress. It's really the end grain where the moisture is going to get in, which is why when you look at things like long tabletops and such, um, a lot of times you'll see checking or splitting at the ends but you don't see it in the middle. And that's because that moisture change at the ends happens. Uh, there's a much, much greater movement sometimes in long, wide pieces at the ends where the end grain is than there is in the, um, in the middle. Um, in fact, that's one of the, the reasons I think that breadboard ends were, were um, started to, to be used. People say that, uh, oh, the breadboard ends are, are to prevent cupping. Um, I think that's a complete bunk as well, because um, if you were to take a piece, even something like oak, let's say you take a three, three or three and a half foot long piece of, you know, one inch by um, one inch thick by, you know, 
uh, two inch wide oak, you can bend, you can put a bend in that yourself the same way that a cupping tabletop would put a bend in that piece of oak. So that, that breadboard is not preventing cupping in the board at all. However, what I do think could happen is that, um, by allowing some movement at the ends, but compressing, you know, if you make your, your tenons in the center of that breadboard end somewhat tighter and don't allow the movement at the center of the board, you can help possibly, uh, I don't have any, any proof of this, but you can possibly help to, um, prevent some of that splitting that we sometimes see in the center of a really wide panel by adding uh, breadboard. So, um, that's just a, again, just a theory of mine, but, um, to go back to your question, no, it is absolutely 100% not necessary to finish both sides of anything. Um, and period pieces have shown that they period pieces were never finished on the inside ever. Um, I've never once in my entire life seen a period piece that had finish applied to the inside of the case. Um, usually even the undersides of a table were not finished. Anything that could not be seen did not have finish applied. So uh, absolutely not necessary to finish both sides of a piece of furniture. So our next bit of feedback comes from John Bates. John says, I'm enjoying the discussion on hammer veneering. I'd like to hear your thoughts on joining veneer pieces using this method for book matched panels or for edging. I've read about overlapping two veneer pieces and slicing through both at the joint line. Do you think this is the best method or would budding the pieces together work better? I also read that a toothing plane should be used to create a crosshatch pattern when veneering over solid wood. Do you think this is a necessary step or not so much? So the first part um, about book matching veneer, I think it depends on the type of veneer. If you're using um, commercial veneer that is about a 40th of an inch thick, then overlapping the pieces using a straight edge and slicing through the two pieces simultaneously with a knife, I think is, is going to be your best bet for getting a good match at that glue line. Because the pieces are so thin, you're not going to be able to um, take that commercial veneer and do a very good job planing those edges to get a, a good joint. So I think the method that, that your first method where you overlap the two pieces and slice through them both at the same time, um, and then, you know, peel away the, the sliced parts, uh, before sticking the veneer back down, I think that's definitely going to be the best method for getting a good book match in commercial sawn veneer. Now, if you're talking about shop sawn veneer, you're looking at pieces that are actually closer to, you know, maybe a, a tenth to an eighth of an inch thick, so anywhere between a sixteenth and an eighth of an inch thick. That's some pretty thick veneer, and you're not going to be able to overlap that and slice that. Um, like you would with commercial veneer. So in those cases, I would say um, what I would do would be to match plane them, to take the two pieces of veneer, sandwich them, close them up like a book, put them on a shooting board, um, and maybe even put a little bit of um, of call weight down on top of those two pieces of veneer to kind of hold them flat while you're, sh you're shooting the edges uh, on a shooting board. And then when you open them up like a book, it would just be like match planing thicker pieces. Those two pieces of veneer should fit together real nice. But again, that's not going to work with really thin commercial veneers. That's more of something that's going to work better for shops on veneers. Now, the whole toothing plane thing, I've had discussions about this, um, you know, with, with different folks that I know who, who know a lot more about veneer than I do. Um, and I'm kind of in agreement with what they've told me that, um, the toothing plane really was not used to create better glue surface 
um, for the veneer. It was used more as a way to get surfaces flat, especially surfaces that um, had really, really nasty grain. Um, so if you look at a lot of, of veneer, the whole reason you're using veneer is because A, the wood is too unstable to use in solid form, but more than likely what you end up with is you have a, a really special piece of wood and you don't have a lot of it. It's, you know, maybe it's a burl, maybe it's something with a, a lot of, um, of curl in it or, um, or bullseye figure, um, or like a quilted maple or something that's really expensive. Uh, maybe you don't have a really big piece of it, but you want to extend the use of that. So you're, you're sawing that into veneers. Well, the, the figure in those woods is caused by lots of swirling and reversing grain. And you're not going to be able to plane that stuff flat with your regular old smooth plane in a lot of cases. So what they would do would be to use the toothing plane because the toothing plane can ignore grain direction. You can plane, you know, in either direction along the board, across the grain, diagonally, doesn't matter. The toothing plane is not going to tear out. So you would prepare both of your surfaces with that toothing plane. And you wouldn't necessarily have to prepare the substrate surface with the toothing plane. Um, but the benefit of doing so would tell you that that piece that you have, once you saw toothing marks, even toothing marks across the whole piece of substrate, you knew that that piece was flat enough for the veneer. So um, that's what I've been told by folks who know a whole lot more about veneering and traditional veneering techniques than I do. Um, and I tend to agree with them. I don't see that, um, you know, have toothing the surface is really providing a whole lot of extra bonding, uh, for the glue. Um, I think the glue does just fine on its own without the tooth surface. Um, and you know, I, I think it's more to keep, to make sure that the surfaces are flat and to help you plane, um, those highly figured surfaces to make sure that they're flat before you go ahead and apply that veneer. So our third bit of feedback comes from Randy Murray. Randy says, I live in Northern Virginia, and I think I found the answer to keeping your hand tools rust-free in open storage. I pointed a small fan at my tools, and so far, so good. I oiled them first, of course, but compared to past years, this has been a huge improvement. Well, that is a fantastic tip, Randy, uh, and I think it can certainly help. I don't think it would help me in my my shed, my old shed, because uh, uh, it's basically just a roof, um, and and the walls are so leaky. But I think you know, if you're in a in a sealed up shop, I think definitely uh, moving the air around those tools could certainly help and keep um, keep some of that moisture away. So great tip! Thanks for sending that in. So that's it for the feedback for today. Thanks to everyone who sent that in. Let's get into our questions for today. So our first question comes from Eric. Uh, uh Eric says, I was in a thrift store the other day and picked up a few volumes of the Encyclopedia of Diderot and D'Alembert and found a couple of plates from the woodworking volume that showed what I think is a strange kind of jointer, or at least a plane that performed the same function. My 18th century French is not that great, but I think it says worker who prepares a joint on the colombe. You can see a colombe in figure five. I think the caption could mean Colomb, a strong plane used for preparing joints. Uh, Colomb in Old French, or Colombe, uh, I'm guessing it's probably pronounced, in Old French means joist or upright. 
I'm guessing since the plane body is sort of a joist, then it's a joist plane. Uh, so, um, Eric, I, I did look at the picture that you sent along, and what it appears to me to be is a Cooper's joiner. Uh, and these are, are pretty common. Um, you can find them um, even still today on the, on the old tools market. Um, you know, it's a five or a six foot long joiner plane that's used upside down with a stand, um, just like what you had pictured there. And uh, it's used actually to pass the wood over the plane instead of passing the plane over the wood. And this is a benefit for coopers who make things like buckets and barrels and casks because they're typically using short pieces of lumber and they're doing all of their work by eye. So it's kind of a pain in the butt to constantly be um, clamping those pieces in a bench vise, making a couple passes with the plane, taking it out of the bench vise, sighting down the piece to see if it's got the right um, shape or, or the right curve that they're looking for or the right angle, and then putting it back in the vise to correct it. So instead, they use these long joiner planes that are, are like I said, five to six feet long, um, and they sit on the ground. One end sits on the ground, and the other end sits up on a stand. And uh, they can just pass the wood over it, look at it, and see what it, you know if it's if it's if the staves are planed at the right angle that they need, or if they have the right curvature to them. Um, and if not, they can make another pass and, and direct that pressure towards the ends or towards the middle or wherever it needs to be directed. Um, it just makes the, the Cooper's job a lot easier than working at a bench. So to me, that's what it looks like they're, uh, they're doing in that picture. But uh, great find on those old books. So our next question comes from Hugo Belargin, and Hugo sent in a voicemail uh, on workbenches, or actually several questions, but uh, his first one is on workbenches. Hey, Bob. This is uh, Hugo from uh, Montreal and Quebec. I would like to say fantastic. It is bravo for your podcast and your website. I've got a couple of questions. First, about benches, I would appreciate if you could have your, uh, we could have your ideas about the Rubo or the English style, like Paul Seller and the English with Worker style, or even your style that I saw in your your uh, YouTube kind of channel. I would I'd like to have the advantage and disadvantages because I have to make one. Uh, the other topic would be about pins and tails, and you just talked in the last uh, one of your podcast number four. Uh, like I saw that French Claus is doing the pins first. I would like to have your idea and your thoughts on uh, those uh, different ways of cutting dovetails. Uh, the third one would be about the famous Nintendo dodges. Uh, if you've got a manufacturer of those, I would appreciate. And really, I would I wish I had even more examples of the the way you use them. I would appreciate that very much. And the last one would be uh, about spoke shave uh, versus chair devils. I'm trying to understand or to see uh, which one would be the best. Uh, I've made a chair devil from a scratch uh, from a stainless steel uh, shim, uh, like Paul Sears does. I would like to have your ideas about that. So I thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to listen to you. And uh, have a great day and stay sharp. Ciao. So thank you, Hugo, for sending in that uh, voicemail. Um, 
Rubo versus English versus my my kind of mix of benches. Um, it really just comes down to personal preference. They each have every bench um, is a compromise, and I think uh, if you if you happen to have some time and you want to go and watch my old YouTube video on designing a workbench, um, it was the first part of my workbench series where I talked about you know how to how to um, set the workbench height for your particular. Um, for your particular height and the tools that you use, I talked about different materials in workbench construction, um, and it was really just like a general um, general overview of bench design. But really, what it comes down to, in my opinion, um, hasn't really has not changed on this over the years, is that every bench is a compromise in some way. Um, there there is no perfect bench because. Certain things are, are done better at different heights, for example. Um, if you're planing rough lumber, you really want a bench that's lower. If you're doing carving, ideally you want a bench that's higher. If you're doing joinery work, somewhere in the middle is better. Um, and we can't really, most of us can't have three different benches. Um, and, and while they do make height adjustable benches, um, I've used them. And adjusting the height isn't the easiest thing in the world on most of them. So um, it just, what ends up happening is you you end up setting it at a compromise height anyway, even though it's adjustable. So, um, you know, the fact of the matter is every workbench is going, every workbench design is going to be a compromise in some way. Now, the Rubo bench, the, the great thing about the Rubo bench is it's got, that thick, heavy top, so you don't need any support underneath the top other than the legs because the top is self-supporting. The problem with the Rubo benches, um, for me, is one, sourcing really thick timbers. Um, I'm building a sort of Rubo-esque bench right now, or I started, I haven't really done much work on it, but um, out of thick pine, three and a half inch thick pine. And the only reason I'm doing that is because I have those timbers left over from building my log cabin. Um, but most people, unless you can find someone who deals with timbers for log cabins and timber framing um, and will sell you just a couple of those timbers, um, you're going to have a hard time finding pieces that are four, five, and six inches thick, which is what the Rubo bench is calling for in, in order to be self-supporting. If you can't find thick timbers, your other option is to laminate. Um, so you take four by fours or you take two by sixes and you turn them on edge or what, you know, whatever. And you've got to glue all these boards face to face. Um, if you've been following my blog for any length of time, um, you'll know, I absolutely despise that procedure. I cannot, I just, there's nothing I hate more than laminating a bench top. It's just a huge pain in the butt for me. Um, I don't enjoy doing it. Um, and it's just not, not a way that I would consider, building a bench by hand. If you have a joiner and you have a planer and you have access to wide equipment that you can use to run, you know, a half of a bench slab through, you got a portable thickness planer and you can, you know, make outfeed supports on either side and you can run, you know, a, uh, a 12 inch wide section through that thickness planer. That's, you know, five inches thick with a, with decent outfeed support. Great. Um, then it's not so bad. But if you've got to do it all by hand and you're laminating up, you know, two inch pieces by hand, or you're, you know, building a bench out of hard maple and you're ripping 
um, eight quarter hard maple by hand and then laminating, planing and laminating by hand. It's a huge, huge, huge amount of work for very little extra benefit over a simpler method. So that's why you don't see laminated benches historically because they just weren't practical to build by hand. So if you don't have the machines to do all that laminating, your choices are fine wide timber, wide thick timber. And if you can't find wide thick timber and you don't want to do all that laminating by hand, which obviously, you know, as I said, I don't, um, then you need to, to come up with a different bench design that's going to be easier for you to build. Enter the English bench. The English bench uses two inch thick timbers, standard eight quarter timber that you can find in just about any lumber yard. The downside is the English bench doesn't have the thickness to support its weight over like if you're building an eight foot bench, that eight foot bench over, you know, the two inch thickness just can't self support. So you need to build some structure underneath sort of almost like framing a floor for a house. You have some, some, um, some joists, some bearing strips that go across from front to back to support the extra weight of that bench. But the benefit is you don't have to laminate that top. You get yourself two 12 inch wide eight quarter boards and those flat sawn eight quarter boards make up your top. So it's a very quick bench to build. My bench that I have now was, is really no different than a standard English bench other than the work holding. So the way my bench is built is a standard English bench. I just took the vise and moved it to the opposite end um, based on a picture in Joseph Moxon's book. Um, and I added a, a planing stop, a crochet, similar to what Rubeau shows in his book. So it's sort of a, a, a combination of multiple different benches, but it's still an essentially English design, an Eng a historical English bench with just some modifications to the work holding. Um, but either way, like I said, everyone is a compromise and it really comes down to how you work or how you would like to work, what timber you have access to and the way you're going to be building the bench. If you don't have the machines to laminate up a thick top, I highly recommend just um, building an English bench. It's so much easier than trying to laminate lots of, of boards, um, especially if you've never, if you've never done any serious woodworking before getting that top flat, laminating everything up um, and getting it to really look nice and, and function well is not that easy of a task for someone who doesn't have a whole lot of experience. Paul Sellers makes it look easy. Paul Sellers has been doing this for 50 years. Um, and I know he says any first timer can do it. And I know first timers who have done it, but in my opinion, it's not the best way to go for someone who has very little experience working with hand planes, working with hand saws and, and woodworking in general. Um, so if you don't have access to those thick timbers, I would say find a different design that doesn't require those thick timbers like the English bench. If you have access to machines to help you do that laminating or to, um, or you do have access to thick timbers, by all means, go ahead and build yourself a Ruba. Um, pins versus tails, personal preference, really. Some people do pins first. Some people do tails first. I found that in, in most cases, if you do pins first, you can do just about any type of dovetail joint and not have to change your practices. If you're used to doing tails first, there are some situations where you're going to need to do pins first. For example, if you want to do half blind dovetails, I find it easier to do tails first than pins first. If you want to do, sorry, I, I, 
if you're doing half blind dovetails like for a drawer, I find it easier to do pins first rather than tails first. Um, if you're going to do a full blind dovetail, um, you can't do tails first. You have to do pins first. There's just no other way to do it. So you'll find that there are some situations if you do lots of different types of dovetails where you will be forced to do pins first because you just will not be able to do tails first, um, i.e. the full blind dovetail. So if you never if if you're never going to do anything but through dovetails, it really doesn't make a difference. It really just comes down to personal preference. But I've found that by doing pins first, you'll be able to always do pins first. If you get used to doing tails first, that's not always the case if you start getting into some of the more complex dovetails. Um, in candle gouge manufacturers, unfortunately there are not too many um contemporary manufacturers of in-candle gouges. Henry Taylor is one that I know of, and I'm, there are very few pieces, places you can get those anymore. Um, you might have to look at some suppliers in England in order to get Henry Taylor in-candle gouges. Um, and Two Cherries is another one that I'm aware of that's currently making in-candle gouges. Some of the carving tool manufacturers will custom grind for you, um, but it may not be worth the additional cost if you can just get them from Two Cherries or um, Henry Taylor. And then finally, a spoke shave versus a chair devil. Um, two different tools, really. A spoke shave is like a plane. It's a cutting iron. Um, it, the blade is bedded either at 45 degrees or low angle, like a bevel up plane, and it slices and cuts. A chair devil is a scraper. Um, you're going to get a different finish. You're going to get a different action. A spoke shave can be set for a much heavier cut than a chair devil. A chair devil is more of a finishing tool like a card scraper because essentially that's what it is is a, a shaped card scraper and a handle so uh, thank you for sending in that voicemail and i hope that answers all your questions so our third question comes from roland wallbank roland says i thought i would ask your views on the use of jigs in hand tool woodworking watching fine woodworking videos it amazes me how much effort it takes to make a jig for a machine to do a thing i can complete with just as much effort with hand tools However, I recently purchased a Baron dovetail guide and a Veritas plane fence. Does this, does this make me a bad person? Joking, of course, but I did get wrapped up in the hand tool versus jig thing for a while. At what point does a jig make the use of hand tools mechanical? So, um, you know, I, I think we, we get a little wrapped up in this sometime as you're, you're finding yourself from time to time. Um, Ultimately, we use jigs and hand tool woodworking all the time. However, we tend to call them appliances. Um, a bench hook is essentially a jig for holding your stock while you use a handsaw at the bench. A shooting board is essentially a jig to hold your plane square to your stock so that you can shoot the end square. Um, donkey's ears are jigs to allow you to sneak up and, um, and plane a 45 degree angle or any other angle that you, you design that donkey's ear shooting board to be. Um, people use chisels, guides for chisels all the time. I have a guide in my tool chest. Um, it's a 45 degree block that I use to guide a chisel and I use it when I make, um, frame and panel doors. And I have um, mitered sticking or, or molding on the inside of that door frame that has to be mitered. I use that chisel guide all the time to get a perfect 45 degree. So 
I think we t- we tend to you know look down on jigs. You know, oh, you need all these jigs, and and people who use machines are constantly building jigs. And I would agree that we can certainly do a lot more with hand tools without jigs, um, because a lot of our work is freehand. You know, you you make a line, you solder the line. It's it's usually that simple. But you're not usually, you know, if you use a miter box to to saw your miters, that's essentially a jig. We call them appliances, but it's essentially a jig. So we do have the you know jigs that we use in hand tool woodworking as well. I think we just use them for different things than they might use the, for machines. You know, in the machine world, you're going to put that uh, piece of wood on a, on a m- m- compound miter saw or on the miter gauge of your table saw and cut that 45 degree and you're done. Well, we're not usually doing that. We're either going to saw it in a miter box or, or mark a line and saw it. And then you're putting it on a shooting board to sneak up on that per- perfect 45. So, uh, you know, we have jigs for the things that we do in handwork, just like we have jigs for things that we do with machines. And it's just a matter of you know, needing different jigs for different tasks based on the, the tools that you're using. So um, I don't think, you know, using jigs in hand tool woodworking makes it any more mechanical. Um, you know, we do it all the time. I think we just don't realize or we don't consider it the same, maybe. Um, I don't know. But, um, you know, I, I just see it as a way to help us get to the end result that we're looking for. So, uh, I would say don't feel bad about using that Veritas plain fence or the Baron Dovetail Guide or uh, a shooting board or a bench hook or a miter block or any other appliance or jig that you might use in your woodworking. Uh, as long as you're enjoying the work that you're doing, that's all that matters. So our last question is another voicemail, uh, and this one is from Scott Adams, and Scott wants to know about boring straight with a base uh, brace and bit. Hey, Bob. I wanted to uh, reach out to you and ask you to talk for a little bit about the bracing bit. So I use my bracing bit all the time and I'd like to stay with traditional methods uh, because I'm broke and because I already have a bunch of traditional tools that I love using. But anytime I try to drill some precision holes, everything always ends up so jacked up. So for instance, uh, I was trying to put together a ramp assembly for the shaving horse that I'm making last weekend. And uh, I put everything together, pinned it together with a big dowel for support, and uh, it was all skewed. And I ended up having to use my reamer to taper the holes, uh, which made it look, made the holes on the dowel look bad. And I felt like it made the joint weaker as well. And uh, it, in short, it just really hurt my feelings. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, Bob, could you talk about uh, how to use the bracing bit in a more precise manner, uh, please. Uh, thanks for all you do. Love the show. Talk to you later. So Scott, thanks for that voicemail. I'm uh, sorry to hear about your woes with the, the bracing bit. Um, it, like anything else, it is something that's going to take a little bit of practice to do freehand. There are some tricks that you can use to help you out. Um, if you use a pair of tri squares, I know most folks today are using combination squares. Um, you can do, use those too. If you uh, slide the slide the ruler all the way in, so that you can stand the square up on its on its square side. Um, and if you use a pair of them and uh, and stand them up 
at 90 degrees to each other. So you, you uh, stand one of those squares up in the in the x-axis and one along the y-axis, uh, and it sort of gives you a crosshair, and you can take your time and sort of uh, follow the two squares with your bit. You kind of line it up and, and watch as you're going. You make a few turns, you know, tilt your head to the side and, and sight along the squares and see if you're still lined up. And uh, you can make adjustments until you get, you know, an inch or so deep. Uh, once you get past about an inch deep, then it's hard to, to really straighten it out. Um, so, you know, up until about an inch deep, you, you can make some adjustments. Um, one of the things that I'll do if there, there's a couple different ways that you can, you can also do this. Um, one of the things that I'll do if I need to be really precise is to really take my time and drill a hole through a piece of wood that's about two inches deep and I'll try to do it from both sides. So for, you know, if I take a scrap, that's a, like an eight quarter scrap, drill a hole through it by drilling from both sides um, and use that, that square method and really take my time and really make sure I get it dead perfect. And if I don't get it dead perfect, it's a scrap piece. I'll toss it and try again until I get a hole that is dead perfect or at least as perfect as I want it to be. And then I can use that as a guide block. So, um, for example, if I need to drill, you know, through a workbench and it needs to be perfectly straight, usually it doesn't, but you know, if I've got to drill a hole that's perfectly straight through something, I can then use that guide block, clamp it in place and use that sort of as a guide for my bit so that I'm sure that it, it, the bit is staying straight while I'm um, getting that hole started. Because that's really the most critical part is getting that hole started straight. One, uh, with an auger bit, once that hole is started straight, it's going to stay pretty straight. And once you get past you know, that first inch, it's going to follow that initial path. So it's really getting it started on a good straight plumb path. So if you can make yourself a guide block um, and clamp that down, then you only have to be really, really, really slow and really precise for that first hole through your guide block. After that, the guide block will help you to keep things straight and you'll be able to move a lot faster, um, drill in those holes, and they'll stay a lot straighter for you. Um, the other way is, is, you know, another way, as I, I mentioned, is to drill from both sides. If you've got a piece that's only, you know, an inch or so thick, if you can, if you have to drill a, a through hole and you can come in from both sides, it's going to help to make that hole uh, much more precise. So you, you're going to want to transfer the location of the starting point to the other side and restart the hole from the other side before the lead screw pokes through. You only want to get about halfway from each side. Um, and that way you'll be sure that it lines up on both sides. It may be a little wonky in the middle, but if you're in a situation where you need to pass that like a dowel completely through that piece, um, you can kind of take a, a gouge or, or a rasp or whatever and clean up that wonkiness in the, in the center where it's not going to be seen. Um, and then on the two sides, you'll, you'll at least be assured that they line up and you'll, it'll look good on the, on the surface where the two holes start, because at least there'll be a line there. Um, and an, another way that I will sometimes do this is to, to use something that I learned from a, an old friend um, who unfortunately is no no longer with us, um, but he called it the ring trick. 
and I did a video on it. I think I, I years ago I called the video the ring trick um, because that's what Stephen called it. But um, I I think I renamed the video how to bore straight with a brace and bit. But essentially, you use any type of ring. You can use a key ring. You can, if you're married, you can take your wedding ring off your your finger. Um, and instead of boring vertically, you're going to bore horizontally. And what you're going to do is you're going to put the ring onto the shank, the shaft of the the bit brace, the auger bit. And this is only going to help you with you know holding the um, holding the bit level. So if if the bit is not level, what you're going to see is that as you start to twist or turn the brace, the ring is going to start to travel on the shank of the auger bit. If it starts to move towards the workbench, uh, you know you're too high at the brace end and you've got to drop down a little bit. If the ring starts to walk towards the brace, you know you're too low and you've got to pick up a little bit. If the ring stays in one spot while you're boring, you know you're nice and level. Um, and then what you can also do is put a tri-square um, next to the, the hole that you're boring coming straight out from the bench, and that will help you to bore square. So you've got the ring to help you to bore level, the tri-square that's clamped next to your piece to help you to bore square in the, in the horizontal plane, and you should be uh, good to go. So that's another method that works pretty good. But uh, if I have to be absolutely precise and I've got a whole bunch of holes to drill, um, I'll by all means make a guide block, get some scrap eight quarter or you know ten quarter or whatever you've got laying around. Even even inch and a half like framing lumber um, can work, um, and get that first hole. Really focus on getting that hole through that guide block nice and perfect. And once you've got one done through the guide block, that guide block's really going to help you out. Uh, to get the rest of them nice and square. So uh, give it a try and keep practicing. I'm sure you will get it. So that's it for our questions for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions, and I certainly hope that you do, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is experimental archaeology. Um, it, it may sound like a kind of a, a boring topic at first, and, and actually I don't think it's going to be too long of a discussion, but um, I, I think a lot of us are into this and we may not even know it. So um, experimental archaeology, what what is it actually? Well, in in woodworking terms, it's what a lot of us do in the hand tool world already. You know, it's taking historical techniques, maybe historical tools, um, and trying them out and seeing how they work. Um, and I, I think this is something that a lot of folks e- either are doing already and don't realize it, or they should be doing because they have, you know, we have questions about things. Um, and we're looking for answers, yet we can't seem to find those answers. Um, and I, I think in the hand tool world, this happens quite a bit because we find these you know, old arcane tools and we're not sure how they're used or um, techniques that someone might describe um, or whatever. Um, and we question it 
And and that's what we do in, in terms of experimental archaeology. You know, it, for anyone who's ever worked in the museum field, whether as a volunteer or maybe, you know, you were employed by a museum, um, sort of like the, the folks at Colonial Williamsburg um, or, you know, any number of other volunteer uh, type of living history museums. I, I volunteered at one in uh, Pennsylvania before we moved called Pensbury Manor. And uh, essentially we were participating in experimental archaeology. We were using the old tools. We were going through old books like Joseph Moxon's and, uh, and trying to put the techniques described in those books back into use to see how did they work. Uh, one of the things that we'll sometimes do is to see, you know, we'll, we'll talk about how fast can people work by hand. And we look at a lot of old books and things. Um, old account books are good ways to, to get an idea of how fast they could work because they, they typically had prices for a particular piece. And based on the price of that, we can figure out, you know, the, the wages the prevailing wage was was very well documented um, at the time. So based on the wages and the, the final price for the piece, we can tell pretty accurately about how many man hours it took to build a particular piece. Now, when we say man hours, you know, if, uh, if we look at a piece and says, okay, this is, was the price of the piece based on the wage, uh, it would be approximately 10 man hours to build this piece. Well, that could be two men working five hours each. It could be one man, one man working 10 hours. Um, but in either case, we know it took approximately 10 hours to build that particular piece. And then we can kind of take a step back and say, well, you know, how do we do that? How do we get more efficient? And we look at some of the features of the piece. And, and this is where a lot of folks who like old furniture and like old tools will start to talk about things like leaving four plane marks uh, on the underside of a table or inside of a case where they won't be seen um, using, you know, seeing hatchet marks. Well, that's all well and good when we see that type of stuff, but how practical is it really? And that's when we go back to our shops and we pick up a hatchet and we grind a heavy camber on our foreplane and we try these things out. We know we get an idea from looking at an old piece of furniture and then we go back to our shop and we say, okay, I want to try that. I want to see how well does it actually work? Well, that is essentially experimental archeology. span And, you know, I think a lot of us are doing it and it doesn't have to have anything to do at all with old furniture. Um, we use, we look at old furniture and I've said this time and time again, if you're interested in hand tool work and you're interested in becoming efficient with hand tools, it really pays to look at old furniture. Even if you absolutely despise antique furniture, you know, you, you hate the Chippendale style, you hate the William and Mary style, that's fine. But study that furniture anyway to see how it was built. What types of things, what types of, uh, of methods you can see that they might have used based on looking at that furniture and then how can you apply that 
to the style of furniture that you like, whether it's mid-century modern or contemporary or, you know, really modern stuff or, or whatever, whatever it is that you like. Um, how can you apply those methods? Because, you know, we have to keep in mind there is there there were thousands of years of furniture made before the Industrial Revolution. We only have roughly 200 years of experience with industrialized furniture. We have thousands of years of woodworking that occurred before the Industrial Revolution. So by looking at a lot of these older pieces, even if that's not the type of stuff you like to build, we can really learn and, and gain some insight into how things might have been done and how we might be able to get more efficient in our own work. So uh, I always you know, tell people to, to look at antique furniture, look at antique, look at the, those types of books um, because you can gain a lot of insight from them even if you don't like the style. And then you go back to your shop and you try it on, uh, on a style of furniture that you like and see what works and what doesn't. Um, and that's experimental archaeology. Um, I can give you some examples. One of the, th- the the best examples that I can give that I, I use all the time is in the use of incanal gouges. Um, when you look at how-to books, modern-day how-to books, you know how to build, uh, how to make a cabrioleg, how to build Queen Anne furniture, how to build Chippendale furniture, what we see a lot of is, well, first of all, they're usually cutting it on a bandsaw, cutting the general shape on the bandsaw, which is fine. But even once you get to the handwork after that, what we see a lot of is using modern rasps and files. But when we go back into a lot of the historical books, we don't see a lot of mention of rasps and files. There were certainly were rasps and files made. Um, farriers have been using them, you know, for hundreds of years at least. But when we go back into the historical trade books, we don't see a lot mentioned on rasps and files. Yes, they had access to them and yes, they likely did use them, but I don't know that they were, I'm not so sure that they were relied on as heavily as we rely upon them today. I don't think they cut them quite as finely as we tend to have them cut today. Um, and I, you know, when you see pictures of old rasps and files, uh, Jeffrey Green in his book, uh, American Furniture of the 18th Century, has a picture of an old rasp, and it's very, very coarsely cut. Was it used for woodworking? We don't know. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But it, it's a very rough-looking tool, and it's not something that I would think I would be using on something as fine as a mahogany cabrioleg, because you really didn't need to. So when you look at these old forms, well, if they weren't using rasps, what were they using and why? And I I got on to using, well, obviously, you know, you can use spoke shaves. Why? Because they're faster, way faster than a rasp. Um, And they leave a cleaner surface behind. Clean up with scrapers and you're done, right? Um, Way faster than using rasps. I got into using in-candle gouges from making cabriole legs and, and... curved, concave curved surfaces. I wanted a faster way to do things. I had learned from, you know, some modern books and I was using rasps and files for a lot of the work. And it was taking an incredibly long time to do, to, to shape and to refine 
inside curves. And it was, it was somewhat discouraging to me because it, it just didn't seem to make sense, especially when you wanted a really nice crisp corner. Let's take, for example, um, a table apron and you wanted this nice scrolling curve in a table apron. Well, the minute you start rasping and filing that you're starting, you end up breaking the corners and you start to lose the crispness in that apron in, in that transition because the rasps just can't do that real well. And I, I wanted a, a more crisp transition. So I started looking at other ways. Well, spoke shaves couldn't get into a lot of these curves. They could get into the more broader curves, but they couldn't get into the real tight curves. And then I saw these tools called in-canal gouges and everyone, any, anything you read about them um, was saying, well, they were used by pattern makers. They weren't woodworkers tools. They were pattern makers tools. Um, furniture makers didn't use them. You know, carvers didn't use them. They were pattern makers tools. And I challenged that wisdom a little bit because it just didn't make sense to me that especially some of the in-canal gouges that I was seeing that were so short that they would be used by pattern makers. Pattern makers traditionally had much longer chisels because of the type of work that they were doing. So why would they be using these much longer out canal gouges and much longer in canal gouges and much longer um, pairing chisels yet these shorter in canal gouges existed right alongside the longer ones why so I, I looked through some books and I, I did a little bit of studying and it turns out when you look into Peter Nicholson's book he does discuss he does discuss gouges and if you actually read the text carefully that Peter Nicholson writes about gouges, what he is describing is an in-canal gouge. He doesn't actually talk about out-canal gouges at all. Um, my presumption is because they weren't really used too much by joiners and cabinet makers. They were more carver's tools. But he does talk about, in the section on joinery, he does talk about gouges with a beveled ground on the inside of the curve, aka an in-canal gouge. So that made me think, well, he, Nicholson's talking about this in the joinery section. Why, why would he be talking about this in the joinery section? Obviously, they're not being used, um, you know, for carving if he's not, because that's not really what joiners are doing. Uh, but joiners do curved work. They make, you know, tables with curved aprons. They make staircases with, you know, curved handrails and, um, you know, they make, all sorts of different things that does that do have curves in them. So why are they using in-canal gouges? So I started experimenting with them. And what I found that was that by using an in-canal gouge instead of a rasp or a file on these concave surfaces, these internal curves, you could get an extremely, extremely clean cut surface that was essentially ready for finish right off the tool without any additional sanding without any additional scraping and with a small set of in-canal gouges you could do any number of different internal radii and and blend those curves together almost seamlessly um, with just a few in-canal gouges so and that really started to get me thinking about that and and I've been using them for uh, internal curves ever since and I, I use them all the time for 
just about every inside curve type curve cut that I make. I use them on the backs of knees, on cabrio legs. I use them on the concave surfaces of ankles, on cabrio legs, uh, because they can make that ultra clean uh, cut surface that is made with a slicing tool, a cutting tool, not abrading the surface. Um, and it just, it goes much faster. Um, if you want to see a very simple um, example of this, a very simple demonstration of this, back when I did my Porringer tea table, um, I used in-cannel gouges to, alone really, nothing more than an in-cannel gouge, to make this small cove on the table apron. So if you go back to the episode where I made the table aprons, you can watch the um, the surface being cut with an in-cannel gouge that is then ready for finish. There's no additional sanding that was done, no work with a file. It was just a surface left behind by the in-cannel gouge. Um, so that's a good example of experimental archaeology and one of the things, you know, one of the ways that um, it helped me. And to this day, I still don't, you know, hear a lot of people talk about in-cannel gouges when it comes to furniture making. Um, but in my mind, they are an absolutely essential tool for a someone doing handwork if you're going to get into anything but straight surface you know straight straight edges if you're going to start making curves in any of your work in candle gouges are a fantastic tool and it's it's a shame that they're not more readily available um, because you know with with the most folks doing machine work these days, um, you just don't see a lot of work with in-cannel gouges anymore. And, and I think it's a shame because it's it's a fantastic tool that provides a lot of efficiency. Um, so, you know, that that's one, uh, one example I can give you of experimental archaeology. But there are hundreds of different ways that we can use this to gain more insight into how our ancestors worked. But more importantly than knowing how they did it is knowing how it can help us in our own work. And I think that's really the ultimate goal when we start to get into these experiments. Um, we often get blamed, uh, you know, those of us who, who like the old methods and like to study this stuff often get blamed of being, you know, Luddites and, um, you know, reminiscent of the, of the past and, you know, we're stuck in the past. But really... It's not about being stuck in the past. It's about figuring out how we can move forward and how we can do things better moving forward and how we can do things faster moving forward. Uh, because in essence, we are really more like an 18th century woodworker, whether you use machines or not. What we do in our shops is more like what 18th century woodworkers did than what late 19th century woodworkers did after the industrial revolution. They were factories. They were manufacturing furniture. They were making the same piece over and over and over and over again for sale. Those of us who are in our shops at home, we are really more like the 18th century cabinet maker. We're not making pieces more than once in most situations. We are not manufacturing furniture. We're not designing processes so we can make interchangeable parts that we can just mill and, and spit all these parts out because we're making 20 tables and we need every apron to be able to fit into any one of those tables. We're making one-off projects, usually one piece at a time, 
We're custom fitting everything. And again, this has nothing to do with hand tools. Whether you use machines or whether you use hand tools or a mixture of both, it's really about process, not the tools. And our process in our home shops is really more like that of the 18th century cabinet maker than it is the manufacturer in the 19th century and beyond. So that's why to me, it's really important to look at these old masters and look at these old pieces and see how they were built because that is much more relevant to what we're doing today in our shops than what they were doing in the late 19th century and later with these, um, these manufactories um, that were, were just cranking out pieces left and right and, and interchangeable parts. That's not really how we work, regardless of the type of tools we work with. So that's where I think experimental archaeology comes in. And I think a lot of these techniques that we see that traditionally get, um, they traditionally get, you know, associated with just with hand tools. But a lot of these techniques could potentially be um, implemented with machines as well to gain efficiencies. And I don't do enough work with machines to, to be able to provide lots of examples of how we might be able to use 18th century techniques with modern machinery, um, you know, other than milling and things, you know, milling our stock and things like that. But, um, but I'm sure that, that there are ways that we can apply the efficiencies and the, the, the processes that they use in the 18th century to what we do today with machines that would help with efficiency. Um, so I, I encourage you to, um, to look at some of these old methods, look at some of the old tools and, and see if there's any way that that can be applied to the work that you're doing. Because I, I think you'd be surprised to see, even if you're not interested in that, in the history and you're not interested in the old furniture, um, I think you'll be surprised to see how, valuable that information can be anyway to making your work more efficient, to making your work more precise, um, and to just being able to do better work and focusing on, on what matters, um, you know, rather than, than putting all that effort into trying to, uh, trying to be a factory. Um, and I don't think that's what any, anybody working out of their garage or basement really ever intended to be. So, um, I don't think that's the way you want to look at your own work as, as a factory. I think you want to look at your work as uh, an individual maker, more similar to what 18th century workers were. So, you know, look at some of this old stuff and, and try things. That's, that's, you know, if you get in, anything out of my, my babbling uh, this episode, it's, it's to try things and not just take somebody's word for, um, you know, the best way to do something. But experiment on your own, and I think you'll find what works for you may be different than what works for other folks. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this, because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions, because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, 
You can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt027. In the show notes, you'll find any links that I referred to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all of my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. And you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com slash support. So thank you again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.